Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic interventions. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I'm super excited to have this conversation today, because in addition to being the executive director of the academic design team for Acceleration Academy, uh, academies, academies, she is also a dear friend of mine. My guest today is Sarah Burke. Hey, Burke. Hi, LaShonda. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I am well. I I love you. And I'm just excited to let people in on what it's like in our little world of friendship <laughs> and conversation, which I love. So I'm going to start with you like I do all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Sure. Well, my labor of love and your labor of love allowed us to meet a few years back. So my labor of love is around education and being an advocate for those populations in education that may not always have a strong or consistent voice for them. And that has taken many different forms throughout my career. I started my career in special education as a middle school intervention specialist and then um, became an elementary intervention specialist, um, and then had various leadership titles in special education world. Um, And then about six, seven years ago, I got into a deeper um, realm and offshoot and got into what many people know as alternative education. Um, In my current world, we like to call it flexible education. And that is really helping to design programming um, for students who just find that that traditional four-year high school pathway is not for them. So let's talk about language. And you're so right. We'll have to talk about like our paths meeting. So many awesome stories about that. And I I would actually, yeah, I got something for us. But (laughs) first, language, right? I really just want us to talk about the importance of language for a second. So shifting words from alternative schools or alternative education to flexible education, What do you think that shifts for people? To me, alternative suggests that you are other and you don't fit in the the mainstream. Flexible is how I like to think of one of the positives of the pandemic. Flexible has gotten us into this mindset of just because this traditional Um, thing is not for me doesn't mean that it's a me problem. It just means that things need to be more flexible for my learning style or my lifestyle or what my personal life commands of me. Absolutely. And when I hear alternative schools, I automatically go to alternative rock. I don't listen to alternative rock, (laughs) but necessarily I don't intentionally not, but it's just this idea that I hear alternative and I automatically think outcast. I think, you know, it, it, it has this word association for me that yes. I don't have to try. And that's what I need people to understand around language in the more global scope of how we use it. Language, how the sender intends words to be understood is not always how the receiver understands those words based on life experience. And so it gets tough. It's not about censoring a person or saying, don't use that word, but it is about being aware that how you intended that word to be understood might not be understood by another person. I remember early in the pandemic, you and I having some conversations around all the things that were happening that traditional school districts previously said could never happen. Yes. All of the accommodations that all of a sudden became a thing that was possible, they had really refused to even consider 
how these things could have been possible to accommodate people who learn differently prior to the pandemic. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. So I think um, no matter what realm of education you're in, no matter if that is public, private, um, local, national, um, boots on the ground, et cetera, that we can all say that there are changes that are probably not going away. Um, for your typical public school district, um, many folks embraced online learning, meaning teaching via Teams or Zoom, et cetera, for the first time. Um, some folks, regardless of public private status, also learned how to utilize online tools and set up digital classrooms. Um, and also communication changed, right? So not just from I'm posting lessons here or hopping on Zoom, but also um, the frequency of those communications and the when of those communications, meaning students had um, different options for when assignments were due, when they were completing them, and also being in charge of their own learning. Um, Oftentimes, students were completing work more independently um, for a first pass and then going back and trying to get more supports. It's been really interesting to follow the data um, and research. Of course, it's all still um, forthcoming and new around learning loss and what that has looked like um, during the pandemic and some populations that um, fall in my love language of um, our kiddos who might require flexible led the most. Um, and, and looking what that has done for them, um, we get into deeper conversations around this with access issues. So if we all think of the geographically, the school district where we live and think about the diversity and population of students that live there. So if I think of my own area, um, it is by very diverse in our district in terms of where people live. You have everything from farmland to small town apartments, et cetera. So with that, um, I've really struck up local community advocacy around um, equal access. And to this day, there are still um, Wi-Fi lines being buried here to increase access um, for folks that live in the more rural areas. So those conversations um, have all been, in my purview, positive to, to kind of look at is the playing field even close to level when it comes to if we are going to embrace these other modalities of learning, um, do folks even have the basics to be able to do so? So now if we have Wi-Fi check, what about devices? Um, and it's been really great to see all of the national and local grants that have come out um, to rally and support those efforts. I appreciate that so much. Um, to me, so my uh, proximity to the education world is I often get the opportunity to work with schools and school districts to help them understand trauma, to help them understand <clears throat> how the brain and body work and how the education environment can be a re-traumatizing environment, but also simultaneously helping a lot of educators realize that they got trauma swirling around in them and how that manifests. And so, you know, I do, I, I get to work um, in the education realm pretty closely. And this to me, uh, this being the pandemic and how it's required people to shift really is an opportunity for people to look at inclusion diversity and equity. You know, we talk about DEI all the time and it oftentimes centers around black and white race, which I'll say, and doesn't look at the full spectrum of how we as a, a, cult, a culture in our country have been racialized along this spectrum, but it just really kind of focuses there. And when we come in to look at education and access, like you were talking about, Burke, like access to meaningful ways to be successful yes. and what do other <clears throat> excuse me what do people need and it is amazing to try to get people who are so rigidly rooted in the traditional education system to see anything outside of it it has been a fascinating thing for me watching people really have a difficult, a fundamentally difficult time seeing anything differently than what they've known. And oftentimes these, these are educators who've been educators for a really long time and they have rooted their identity in being an educator and what that has meant and what the experiences has been, has been for them. 
And um, it is, it is very, very interesting. What were you going to say? It is. And it's also challenging. So you're tapping into um, a part of my love language again. When we talk about um, diversity and inclusion and access, we also have to think, you know, we had this pandemic that kind of blew up the way we approach many facets of everyday life. But that also includes the what happened to you during that time. So when we think of learners, perhaps that require more intensive support to maybe require communication devices, um, or maybe kiddos who only um, are able to communicate via eye gaze, et cetera. And we think about the isolation that the pandemic has brought to everyone, even if it was more short-term for others, that learning loss that we continue to monitor, no matter what sector of education we're in, we're all in this together. And I hope that we all are, are working to make sure that we're individualizing whatever those recovery plans look like um, for students. But there's just such, we could take such a deep dive just into what you said, LaShonda, around there are so many different nuances to account for when we look at moving forward, what pieces of plans um, for schools and districts really are things we should hold on to. But then if we hold on to them, how are we ensuring that we're catering to every type of learner, knowing that there's so much diversity um, and executing those individual plans. Yes. And <laughs> if nothing else, what being this close to the education realm during this pandemic time has helped me crystallize is how rooted in uh, capitalism and white supremacy education is in our country. Just every root of it. So when I'm working with folks, let's say 2020 to 2021, and the ultimate fear is definitely how how are these kids going to pass these tests? How are these kids going to advance? How are these, you know, it, it began to break my heart because there is a fundamental now, yes, there's an asterisk, hashtag not all teachers, <laughs> hashtag not all administrators. Yeah, I get that. But as a system, as an education system itself, it is all about advancement to move toward this thing. And there is very little, I experience very little flexibility inside of the educators to go, wait a minute. Like we have an opportunity for a new way. I'm not judging that. Because their livelihood, their their requirements, their instruction is being passed down to them. But when I did have the opportunity to work with some educators who I don't think they would necessarily use the words I'm using, but they began to examine what is this really for? Like we're in the middle of a pandemic and y'all are really telling me this is what I have to do. So I'm curious if the teacher shortages that have been experienced all across the this, at least this nation, if some of that isn't just some people re-evaluating the deep-rooted messages that come through education all the time. And I struggle. I'm not in school anymore, but I have children who are in school. And yeah, so you know, the pre-show that y'all didn't get to hear was all about, you know, Burke and I riffing about like my kids and how they're doing in school and, and all of that stuff. But there is something there for me that like, I've just noticed how I did this. I worked with a school district and I would go and talk at each school and I would do some trainings, but I would do these videos for them. Um, and one of the videos that I did for them was called chasing a ghost. And if you um, I don't know if it made it to the podcast platform. It might have, but it's definitely on my YouTube chasing a ghost. And what I did, this was like going into the 2020, 2021 school year was I, I used Mario Kart as an example. And if you play Mario Kart, you know that if you do single player timed races, you race and then you can come back and then you can race your ghost. So see if you can get a better time than you got before. And that is how I was experiencing this school district going into that school year. After having come from many months where the pandemic just 
pretty much turned everything on its head. And every single educator was trying to figure out what in the world do I do? No one knew, right? So now they're trying to come in and say, okay, we, we want to have a plan. And what is this going to look like? But how many of them were chasing a ghost? Okay, so what, what do I need to do to make sure that I meet or exceed what I've done before? And it was just an opportunity to just say, what if? What if that wasn't the goal? What if regulating a student's nervous system and teaching them how to do that on a regular basis is in fact the best thing that you can teach them for the rest of their lives instead of whatever lesson you think is paramount, right? What if helping them understand that even if I am far away, there is a way to feel community and connection and to feel safe? What if those are lessons that literally will carry them for the rest of their lives and whatever math lesson or social studies lesson, they will forget because I am convinced I literally dissociated during all history and social studies classes throughout all of my schooling. The things that I don't know that the average fourth grader probably does is (laughs) astounding. Okay. I'm, I'm amazing at some things, but don't ask me about states and capitals um, or presidents or pretty much anything history. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. So it's like, man, I'm not saying don't teach those things per se, but I am saying there are so many more human lessons that are fundamentally more important. And, And I just, I just think that's a struggle, but what I'm hoping is that there is an emergent flexibility that is, um, that's making that more of a possibility. Well, and a few comments ago, you brought up a great point, and I'm officially putting on my my work hat because this is um, my my day to day and love language around assessment. And you you brought up assessment and testing and putting that hat on simultaneously with my mom hat. I have um, one of our daughters is a third grader, so um, as we know here in Ohio. Um, third grade is the big year for the first exposure to high stakes um, state testing. And so um, I was just filling out notes that the teacher had requested over the weekend to give her on her two respective days of state testing. And I wrote the phrase that we repeat daily around here. And it's your best is perfect. Um, because we, I think that somewhere along the way, we got in our heads that assessment was all about rating, classifying, categorizing student success and student outcomes. Whereas what I love about my current body of work is we are looking to flip assessment on its head and A, making sure the the down to the individual items that we're creating, are these items as truly aligned to standards so we know exactly what we're assessing and are they as unbiased as possible? Um, And I can dive into that a little bit later, but um, making sure that we're asking the right questions with the true audience in mind. But assessment is really all about getting the, what I call the so what to the educator who is in charge of instructing those students. So if the assessment comes back and says, hey, LaShonda, geography, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, and you, here are the things that LaShonda needs to work on. So true good assessment is going to have um, something fancy we call distractor rationales, depending upon um, the type of assessment. So if it's like multiple choice and it gives the, what I call, so what? LaShonda is struggling with this. So it gives the teacher the, the, what do I teach next? So the conversational household and this um, generation of educators that my uh, poor kiddos are stuck with having all parents and grandparents who are and were educators is that assessments are really about the people who are teaching you to, to help them just fill up their toolbox as much as possible to know what to do next. It has nothing to do with what you know or don't know as long as you give your best it's just helping them create a blueprint of where to go next and I would just love at a national level if we couldn't use this pandemic opportunity to start really examining what are we using is it fair and as unbiased as humanly possible and are we using it to tell the story of where we're going not where you didn't go love that. And I hope that's national because let me tell you, I understand why assessment is perceived the way it is because we live in a supremacist culture. 
We live and are rooted. Everything in our culture is rooted in there is a hierarchy of humanity. Literally, what the myth that is white supremacy has done has said there is there are humans, there is the ultimate human, whiteness, and then there's the antithesis to that, blackness, and then everything fills in in the middle. We are not talking just about race, we're talking about humanity. If we can rank and hierarchy humanity, then everything that falls under humanity gets hierarchy too. So with assessment, it becomes who is the ultimate, the supreme, the, the you know, this, this score, and then mm-hmm. what's the antithesis, antithesis of that and what falls in the middle. And I do believe that's how um, assessments are, are, are based. I love that perspective. Let me tell you, so I have a seventh grader now, but in third grade, dreaded freaking third grade, they called it the third grade guarantee. Okay. The third grade guarantee. Let's listen to those words. The third grade guarantee. So my child, who's never been particularly, who's never really liked school, who has gone to school, but hasn't expressed this joy around academics or the school process or learning goes into third grade and from day one from the very beginning is told that there is this third grade guarantee and they're gonna there's gonna be this test that they have to take that will determine whether or not they advance in school same thing that happened to my third grader this year and that's why we've started the (sighs) daily conversations around personal best and your score does not matter to mom and dad. And and so even when at home we can inoculate, they're still going and spending the majority of their day in this, this system that's going, this is so important, right? So there are, I think, three opportunities perhaps to take this test, at least two. And so my child was freaking out, okay? Freaking out about this test. And he took the test in sometime before winter break, he passed the test, but there was still this, that it, maybe it was a pre, I don't know, but it's like, we got to take it again. Even if he passed it, he had to take it again. So it's like revving up. And I remember the day he came into our bedroom and was like, my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts. And my child is not a child who will make up a story about like a physical pain or something Mm -hmm. to avoid something. It's just not how he shows up. So he's like, my stomach hurts. And so it's in the, it's early in the morning. So as a mom, my very first thing is, did you try to poop? (laughs) Like, (laughs) did you try to poop? Okay. You know? And so like, I think he leaves, I don't know if he goes to bed, but he comes back and he's literally on the floor. Like my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts. And I remember when Jay said, I wonder if it's about testing. And I was like, oh, so I, I said to him, I said, I wonder if your belly forgot, because this was like the day of the test. I wonder if your belly forgot that you already passed the test and that the test just simply says, what do you know right now? So that we know what more you need to learn. But I want your belly to remember that you, you already passed the test. So I still want you to go and I still want you to do the best that you can on the test. But I wonder if your belly just needs to hear that regardless of how you do today on this test, you've already passed it and you're already going to fourth grade and it's all good. And so he left the room and he started to feel better. So one, I need people to understand that our body does not need our permission to get its needs met and to keep us safe. So sometimes children and adults will literally have physical symptoms because it is the body's way of helping us stay out of situations that could be scary or threatening or dangerous. So he didn't fake the stomach ache. I believe he genuinely had somatic experiences, but sometimes in just talking that out to the belly, (laughs) hey, thank you for trying to keep my son safe and out of something that could be really hard and threatening. And, you know, like, it's okay. But I also remember having the conversation with the educators. I need to tell y'all, and this was after third grade. So this was moving into later school years because I learned it in third grade. Can I tell y'all something? My child doesn't do well with threats. Okay. So when he got to whatever grade before middle school, 
teachers were doing this thing to the whole class or to the whole grade, not just my child, but like next year, you're going to be in middle school and that's not going to be accepted next year when you're in middle school and he starts to shut down. So then you start getting feedback like, well, he's just, he's not turning in his work or he's not participating in class. And we get these phone calls from teachers sometimes as like, that's the ultimate threat. I feel like sometimes educators use, we're going to call your parents and my child who understands that his value, love and everything that insecurity isn't based upon performance. is like, fine, call my parents. So when they call, it literally ends up me being like, that's very interesting. So I wonder if he's in freeze. Huh? Right. So as educators who are responsible for children, multiple children all day in an environment who've never learned the five responses to stress, threat and danger of flock, flee, flight, flock, flee, fight, freeze and fawn. To me, that's a that's a disservice. So that's what I do. I go in and help educators understand when my child can't remember what happened in school when he can't remember what the assignment is, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It probably means that he was dissociated. And if you are constantly feeling a threat that you won't pass, then how can you learn? And for some kids like me growing up who wanted to please adults to feel loved and valued, oh, my homework's early. Oh, I'm paying attention because that's how I get love. My child doesn't have to get love that way. So that's not going to work for him. So the differently motivated, all of that stuff. So I I just feel like educators, stop that shit. Like stop scaring kids starting in third grade and then wondering why levels of anxiety are through the roof for school-age children. But anyway, I am temporarily putting my soapbox back under my desk and turning it back over to you, Burke. Um, well, just think, LaShonda, that's a perfect segue to um, how we met and our two worlds colliding. And we both got a front row seat and hand in what it's like when your labor of love and mine um, come together. And you and I got to see with one of the most vulnerable populations in our state, what the expertise that your training can bring to amazing education. And, you know, looking back on my undergrad and grad experiences, I had some amazing field placements and classes and then just, you know, real world experiences. But the fact is, is what kiddos are dealing with is complicated. Um, And oftentimes we look at that iceberg metaphor of what you see versus what's underneath. And I think the the marrying and complement of your world and the um, alternative ed world at the time slash flexible ed world in that particular setting that we were in. Um, it was really awesome to see the power of when you have an amazing group of educators um, coupled with getting some experience just that just flips the classroom management tone on its head. Absolutely. So for a little more context, we were in the juvenile detention space. We met in jail. We met in jail. We did meet in jail. <laughs> <laughs> That fits us so much. Um, We met in jail and I don't know if the general population understands that when a juvenile who is someone, they can actually be older than 18, depending on the circumstance, but think 18 and younger um, is incarcerated in the juvenile detention system. They are educated within that system. And I don't know, you know, that people understand that there are a group of educators who are responsible for educating children who are in jail and the complexities of that, because the amount of time that they are there is flexible. They could be there for three days. They could be there for a much longer time. And those educators are still responsible for meeting each of those students where they are in their academic journey and continuing to educate them from there. And this is different than knowing that you're going to get, you know, all 10th graders coming in. No, absolutely not. I think the youngest incarcerated youth I've seen was 12. Uh, We had during our time together, we had as young as eight and nine. Okay. So eight and nine years old, all the way up to 18, 19 years old. And then you have an educator who has to educate these children. And I did see a level of dedication because 
and on some, I've been in other environments. Let me just say this. And this was a long time ago. Things have shifted, but in some other environments and what we'll say back then was the alternative spaces. It was just kind of like, eh, you know, let's just get some people with at least a bachelor's, call them an educator and put them in spaces with the most vulnerable students. And then a lot of times, sometimes those attitudes were, eh, what's the point anyway? I've seen some horrible things. So to be able to help see and help aid the transition of some of these spaces to go, no, these are highly qualified educators literally meeting these students where they are academically. But then sometimes all those educators knew was academics. They knew education. They didn't understand the brain and body and how they're connected. They understood classroom management from a a school perspective that they learned that's often taught around what you would call a quote unquote, the typical student. Mm -hmm. So my role was to come in and ultimately help these students become human in the eyes of those who are responsible for their day-to-day safety and education. Helping someone see the humanity of another person is in essence helping them understand that the same brain and body connection that that student has, you have. And what does that mean for the nervous system? And to see the beautiful evolution in these classrooms and education where some of the students were eager to go to class, like ready to come in, ready to learn. Because for some of them, it took going to jail to find an educator who genuinely expressed care for them. Think about that. So is jail a revolving door? Absolutely. Is it because these kids are delinquent? No, it's because sometimes, oftentimes, These young people came to jail and found the first people in their lives who genuinely expressed care for them. I need people to pause and think about that. I didn't just work with the, with the educators either. I worked with what we will call youth leaders slash correction officers. I did my internship in the jail. So I sat one-on-one with the young ladies who came in there and I got to hear their stories and I got to hold their stories in this revolving door that the court put one narrative on. I saw the humanity of that door and how they, they would literally be not even consciously, subconsciously attracted back to the jail because at least they had a place to sleep that had a locking door. Think about that. You got to come to jail to feel safe because you know, your door locks that tells you what kind of environment some of these young people were living in because they knew they were going to eat multiple times a day because they knew they would be warm because they knew there would be adults there who would keep them safe from other people. And they knew they could be educated and loved. When we have to go to jail to find those things, I think that really is illuminating into some of the world, some of these young people are living in, but this is where our worlds collided and we did some beautiful work together. Absolutely. I um, value that time and the, the training that you gave the facility um, and we can both hope and know that that lives on there um, and that many kiddos um, got a, a new fresh start um, and many when they left were able to go find more flexible options um, to school or just get welcome back with um, a new perspective from those who had been working with them before. Yes. So in addition to like the work you've done, you've, you've, you've talked a little bit about what you do now in regards to the shifting, the, the, um, I don't know, the narrative around assessment, but in your role currently, um, how would you define what you do? Sure. So Acceleration Academies is, um, I think of us as a kind of a national footprint of educational Um, supports and services. So um, our model can vary a little bit depending upon the state and the partnership, but most of our partnerships, we are a program of the school district, and we will go in and partner with that district to to help re-engage youth who have either dropped out or um, 
have not had much participation in working toward their high school diploma. So um, we do have a few throughout the United States where we do have um, charter models set up, but for the most part, we are partners of the district, meaning that um, the student would then get the diploma from that respective high school. And we are a program that supports that along the way. One of my very, very favorite things about Acceleration Academies is taking the whole child approach. And that sounds so simplistic to all of us who are hardworking in education, but we also feel that, right? We know that that is not an easy lift. Um, many of our students have life circumstances that need to take command over being present and available during those typical school hours during a typical school day. So some examples may be students who um, are parents themselves or um, they are caring for their own parents or other siblings or perhaps have um, a job that needs to occur when the traditional school hours are, et cetera. So um, our curriculum is through our own platform um, and online. However, we are brick and mortar um, as well. And so there's that flexibility to complete coursework um, with, we kind of um, switch up language going back to the very beginning of our conversation. We value language greatly. Um, so, little examples. We don't actually call students students. We call them GCs or graduation candidates because we want our language to be promoting what that ultimate goal is, and that is to get that diploma. Um, with that, our teachers or content coaches are available to work with students. We also um, do an approach that's starting to gain momentum um, I've seen across the country, and that is one course at a time. So instead of saying, Hey, LaShonda, you are nine credits deficient. Um, we're going to go ahead and stack you up with four courses. Instead, we concentrate the focus. We start with one course, and then you work with your content coach and other coaches, depending upon your um, situation and, and where you are in programming, and you go one course at a time. Um, to complete that work. We also have content coaches who are special education certified in their respective states, meaning that we work with students who have identified needs that may come out in the way of um, IEP services and or 504 plan services. Um, so my role is I get um, the best of all worlds, get to, in my opinion. So I get to work directly for our academies as well as some partner school districts that we have across the country in the realm of assessment. Um, so we have, as I mentioned earlier, been working on expanding and redefining what assessment looks like um, and working really hard. Um, we have a psychometrician in residence on our staff. He is our stats guy. Um, and he actually helped us with one partner district work on um, identifying the first name of every student in this district. And this district is in the top 25 of the largest school districts in the country and took the first name and cross-referenced it against the identified racial and ethnic categories. And then we took the names that were present in all of those categories and he ran them doing his psychometrician magic. Um, and essentially what we now have is what we call um, the name project. We're super original. Um, but the goal is when we're creating these items and we're working on all of the things like depth of knowledge, alignment, um, I'll get educatory here just for a second, LaShonda, um, tight standards, alignment, and, and all of those things. We also want there to be that piece of familiarity. So, okay, here is um, a name, my name example, Sarah popped up on that list and that surprised me, but it came across dozens of different um, ethnic categories and then the variation of spelling. So the goal is, let's say I see my own name spelled the way that I spell it in an item. Oh, I know someone else who spells it like this, but they look differently than me. Or I know someone who spells it differently um, and they also look the same as me. That type of goal and also looking at um, appropriate and culturally relevant, which I know um, we have to, of course, do some defining on those because eye of the beholder is what happens when we use words like appropriate, but making sure that the content in our items as well is um, engaging. So, you know, example, 
um, in high school curriculum and assessment, polio used to be something that came up all the time. Well, now we're replacing this outdated thing that kiddos don't necessarily know about with COVID because that's real and it's happening. So same goal um, with infusing names into those items is just bringing that sense of this is not this item that is out there that if, that is off limits because it never has any representation for me in it. Instead, the goal is to have enough of a robust bank where we have engaging topics um, and what the passages and articles may include, as well as having that sense of, okay, this reflects who I know and what's around me in my community. That is so interesting. So I, I don't know what my question is, but I do have a question about the name project. The first thing that came up for me is how no matter um, where I go, I am probably never going to find um, in the truck stop off the highway my name on one of those license plate holders or keychains or things like that, right? So there is this very real thing that my name doesn't show up in places where I see things um, to be relatable. And so are you saying that in addition to some of the Bobs and Joes and Sarahs and, you know, that there is going to be an insertion of other names that can bring relatability to the, to the content? Was that the, was that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Gotcha. Yeah, that's dope. Cause (laughs) uh, growing up in Detroit, I know no Sarahs um and and or bobs or joes um and i can i can i am curious as to what that how different that would have been for me if i had have seen ebony or if i had have seen you know demetrius or if i had have seen malik or some of these other names that felt more more culturally relevant what that would have done to my nervous system not just my ability to intellectually answer this question so i can appreciate that and what's fun is the names you just rattled off. I can tell you just from my memory, half of those names are in the item bank currently. Yes. And so when you all do this um, for assessment, is this just for now, the assessments that are that you all are giving in your partnering districts and things like that? Or are you all creating assessment for a more um, global population? So yes, and um, all of the above. So we have in our assessment division, we have multiple irons in the fire where we are doing work for our own academies, but we also partner with um, other districts and clients across the country um, and do this work um, for them as well. Gotcha. 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 That makes sense. Um, I had, what was I, you know, I had a thing. I should have wrote it down. Um <laughs> And I couldn't remember. Oh, yes. Can you help me understand? I I am aware that charter schools exist and they have even since I was a child, but I don't think I actually know the difference. I think I know the difference between a public school and a private school because I went to private school. But what is a charter school? So I am going to give you a convoluted answer because the definition can change kind of by state, but essentially it comes down to um, governing board and funding is the bottom line. So um, state funding for public schools and the rules that public schools have to follow um, is going to be one flow through. Then we, like in Ohio, we get confusing because we also have community schools that can be feeders off of those. Then you get into parochial schools. Um, and then you get into, I told you it was going to be convoluted. Then you get into um, charters where um, their funding sources, they do not have due to their funding sources, they um, do not have to follow those same rules. So a great way to explain is you've you and I have co-presented and been at many presentations together. So when we think of that FAPE acronym, you've seen me throw around in special ed presentations before, meaning a free and appropriate public education. So all of those um, pieces of law in that national law for FAPE are applicable to public entities, public schools. When we get into um, charters, et cetera, they definitely have rules they have to follow, but they are not um, liable for those public education um, service, the same amount of services. 
does private fall under parochial? Parochial falls under private. Oh, okay. This is going to be like a square and a rectangle. It's going to get really messy in a minute. You know, and I appreciate that. I am 1000% convinced I'm not the only person who had that question. And it, yeah. So it is just very interesting. Like we, we could, so, okay. When, when Burke and I get together, we, we, we talk for a really long time about a lot of different (laughs) things, but I really appreciate um, the conversation and how we started like flexibility and how to genuinely create systems that can meet the learner where they are so that everyone has access to academic success. And that's not even clearly defined as one particular thing, but what do students need in the very, in the, the wide variety of needs. And for so long, in education, it was kind of, this is education and anyone who doesn't learn well within this is somewhere over there. And well, we'll just, I guess, figure it out. Um, And with the rise of people who now are developing language or getting proximity to language that can help define their experience. So a word that I hear used exponentially more now than I did five years ago is neurodivergence. Um, people are now having a word and a concept that helps them understand, if not specifically, just generally, my brain works different. Even in that, different to what? Different to the way that we have been conditioned to believe the brain, quote unquote, should work. So neurodivergence is a term and a concept and an idea that people are really embracing to say, hey, I realize that the way that I have been taught has not been effective because my brain processes information in a different way. But I want to note the trauma that so many people have experienced through school. It is a real thing um, because a lack of understanding, and this can go all the way back to, I've had the privilege of working with some older clients. So think 55, 60 and up who have late, late, um, late life diagnosed dyslexia. And then to be able to sit and help them process the trauma that education was for them, because here's this thing that's happening within their brain that is making it difficult for them to see things in this linear way. And they, the way they have been treated in schools. So we're talking about going back to the times when literally educators could physically hit children for not learning quickly enough or not doing something. A person's resistance to reading out loud was deemed a behavior issue and not an actual attempt for the body to say this is too painful so all of these things so school can be traumatizing and so for some of us like I was just telling Burke um going through school I was a B student with no effort but I often put forth effort which meant I was often an all-A student um and but also that's how I got my love and uh attention and worth right so my experience in school I might look back and it's like, oh, it was favorable. It was good. But how many people literally were being traumatized and have had no words and to this day don't have words to understand that's what they experienced. So I just want to put that out there too. If you're a parent or a caregiver now and it's um it's time for parent-teacher conferences and you notice that just the thought of a parent-teacher conference and you're the you're the caretaker and you feel a tightness in your chest and a knot in your stomach and your body and all you start to feel sick that might be your school trauma rising up in you when educators are talking about how parents and caregivers are not engaged and we just they're not engaged can we pause for a moment to think about how painful engagement might be because they still haven't identified the school trauma that they had when they were going through school. So in addition to creating flexible opportunities and um, surroundings and environments for students, I think there needs to be a level of curiosity and compassion 
for those who went through a very rigid system that was not accommodating or kind to the needs that we've had up until this point. And that has to start to be part of the conversation. If not, we go with that same narrative. So they don't care or they're this. And we just start making it up because it goes back to recreating this hierarchy, this hierarchy of humanity, this hierarchy of academics, this hierarchy of all those things. So I felt that was important to say. You know, LaShonda, I found um, in the years spent in the juvenile justice and mental health um, realms of work um, and and talking with so many kiddos and families and um, their educators outside of those systems that um, there had always been this underpinning of um, teachers have said for years that they were able to quote unquote, predict um, who was going to end up in the juvenile justice system. You and I've talked about this by the age of eight, nine. So meaning third grade. And that always just baffled me. And then I got deeper into this work um, in flexible ed world and had the privilege to work with many populations, including that population, not just remember anybody in flexible ed doesn't matter what, um, background or needs look like. It just means you're you're seeking something differently. And it could be for um, even acceleration purposes and not wanting to take the whole four years. But with that, um, the stories of the youth working with those who were incarcerated or um, were requiring behavior, you know, day treatment um, type programs, um, the, the narrative from their purview around they knew. So imagine talking to high school age youth and they were able to kind of tell you where the wheels fell off. Not one story wasn't by the end of second or third grade. And it was so powerful to me. So if we see it on one side and then it's seen on the other, you know, from a different stakeholder lens, um, the exciting part is what can we do um, to to make sure that this is not a continued cycle, what supports can we put into play? And honestly, a huge one that we've seen across the country, and even more so now with the pandemic, is getting some additional systems of support, aka mental health um, training and providers, to help us see the bigger picture here. It's beyond academics. We do have to get and stay in that place of looking at the whole child um, and re-engaging them wherever they're at. It doesn't matter why. Um, and, and moving forward from there. Yes, which brings up this point. <clears throat> and as we start to wrap up, because I know us, we can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> what what I've said many times, just in the global sense, but I want to bring it specific to education. What you think about a child is how you treat the child. What you think about the child influences the language you use about the child and to the child. So when an educator says, I knew this kid was going to be in the, you know, would go to jail, right? You think that you start treating them that way. And sometimes it don't have nothing to do with the kid. You know what it has to do with? Their siblings. I taught that. I taught their brother. I taught their sister. I taught their other sister. And they all did this. So kids come into classrooms with legacy. Some long-term educators have taught the parents and whatever you thought about that parent, you transfer that to the child. And because you're thinking it, you treat them a certain way and your language shifts. I have been in some places where I've heard educators talking to other educators and the words they have used to talk about these kids. Mind you, these are oftentimes when they don't know I'm there or they more aptly, they don't know who I am. I have not yet been introduced to them in my role. And I'm not talking about like using, um, like calling them outside of their names, like cussing them out or anything. I'm just talking about the use of language they use. Lazy. And all these words that they generate and then they treat them this way. So when I go in, part of it is, it's helping. We got to change our language. Um. By and large, educators are the most unruly group of people to train ever, in my opinion. Um, And I've trained (laughs) a lot of people. You're welcome. (laughs) And what's always fascinating is when that's happening, I point it out. But I also point out how if I'm training a group of middle school teachers, and this is like a true thing, um, middle school teachers have a tendency to be the most disengaged. 
elementary, super engaged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> High school, you get across the board. <clears throat> elementary schools have these beautiful classrooms that are like livable. They look like living rooms with desks and flexible seating and curtains and low lighting and all of these things. And, and it, it's like, hey, kids are going to be here. Then you get to middle school and it's sterile. And it's like, come sit in this desk and you see less of it. I think every classroom needs to look like a preschool classroom. I think from preschool to 12th grade, children would learn better if all of the environment remained friendly. But when I'm training these middle schoolers and I ask a question and literally, you know, it's not a right or wrong answer. It's a, hey, share this thought. And literally no one raises their hand or no one engages. I'm not upset. I let, I, I let that happen. And then I point it out. Y'all are just like y'all students. Now, I don't say that to be mean. I say that to say you have a reason for not participating right now. If I started to use words to describe you, that you describe your students, that would not fly well. If I treated you, if I tried to force and demand that you participate, or I threatened to take something away from you or give you a detention or more time with me to make you participate, you would respond because there is a humanity to this thing. And so sometimes the the expectations that we have of students, we don't even have of ourselves when we go into different scenarios. And I like pointing that out because how can we treat students like humans? Right. How can our more, graduate candidates just be human? Go ahead. Well, more broadly than that, I, I would like to pivot from educator hat to back to parent hat. I think of that all the time of um, and I know you and I have talked about this before, but thinking as my children, just because you're small people, it doesn't mean that I want some of these um, typically passed down traits of you must obey just because you're smaller. I I take it bigger than beyond the classroom too, right? And just thinking how we interact with the children. Girl, that's a whole whole podcast (laughs) episode, but yes. So children are humans with full nervous systems with full needs. Um, They don't have full prefrontal cortex capacity, but full brains. And when we treat them as such, um, it shows. Yeah. So yeah, it's so much. I I appreciate the work, Burke, that you do on the very individual level for me seeing the kiddos who are like, I need to talk to Miss Burke just because they wanted to come and just feel the love and feel human for that moment, all the way to the more global ways in which you collaborate with folks to create a system that is better than the system we've had. Is there anything I didn't ask or we didn't talk about that you want to bring up or any parting words for our listeners today? No, um, I would just say thank you, LaShonda, um, for having me and um, all of the little tidbits that you share via social media, no matter if that's Therapy Thursdays, podcasts, etc. So much of this is applicable to our jobs um, and our parenting, etc. And I think this conversation has just been an example of we don't have to silo our expertise. Um, there are many ways where the two can converge and we can interact in the world in a better way. Absolutely. So if someone heard something that you said and they want to get in touch with you or they are super interested in Accelerator Academies, how might people find and get in touch with you? Sure. So I am on LinkedIn just under Sarah with an H, Burke, B-U-R-K. And then I know that um, you will put up my email address as well with this podcast. And that would be another good way. Yes. Wonderful. Well, Burke, you know, I love you and your family, and I'm so glad you were able to join. Um, Yeah. And just spread some of that educational joy and flexible love. (laughs) Love it. It's going to be my new hashtag. Yes. (laughs) 
I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides the music for the Labors of Love podcast, and to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media. I do want to remind y'all, I still got a Patreon, and you're still listening to my podcast, so you should totally go over to Patreon and throw some support this way. Um, it is at no cost to you, but it costs me and my family a lot, and so your support is very appreciated. I want to thank every listener um, who makes an intentional choice to come listen to the Labors of Love podcast. Love y'all so much. If you have suggestions for content or guests, don't hesitate to come to my website. Go down on the welcome page and there's a form where you can let me know who you want to hear from or what you want me to talk about. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget that our YouTube has all of our Therapy Thursday videos, even the ones Therapy Thursday far outdates when I start putting Therapy Thursdays on the podcast platform, probably by two years. Um, so if you want some other good short content, head over there. And if you haven't already, go ahead and give us that five-star rating. Um, share the podcast with your loved ones and friends until we connect again. You all be well. Be well.